I don't know if there's anything for the children this morning, but I also don't see any children. I gave out a lot of permission slips for today, so I don't need to tell you. Now, some of you adults can take advantage of the nursery. If this gets too long, feel free. Nice carpet in there. You can lay down and take a nap. No? Let's look at Psalm 2. There was a little bit of confusion. I think um, some may have thought that we were looking at Psalm 22. Great study. Glad you got into that. Hopefully not too many of you um, were into that position because you may have not had time to look at the passage that we're going to look at this morning. But Psalm chapter 2 is about Jesus Christ ultimately. And so the question comes down this morning for each one of you here, who do you believe that Jesus is? You think, well, that's pretty simple. It isn't simple. Just heard a Gallup poll this week on um, how many people believe the Bible is the word of God. The percentage in America, 20%. And out of that 20% that believe the Bible is the word of God, many of those people aren't even believers. They just honor and revere the scriptures. That shocked me. It's the worst and the lowest they've ever found. Our world and especially our country is being turned away from the truth. They're being discouraged from even reading it. They're being told lies about the Bible that are easily defensible. But the problem is too many believers today want the pastors to be the one defending the Bible. And they send people to me or to someone else instead of learning how to do it for yourself. Too many that claim the Bible is the word of God still believe that God used evolution. That the beginning allowed for millions of years in the gap theory or progressive creationism or theistic evolution or a variety of teachings that are in the church today. When God makes it very obvious in the very beginning, he took six days. He numbered them in case you got confused. He said there was evening and there was morning. Telling you that it was a 24-hour day. And yet you'd be amazed at what's being taught today. That is one of the major false teachings that is distracting people away from the truth. Because if I can't even believe the first chapter or two in the book of Genesis, why would I read the rest of it? If God is not able to create everything out of nothing, then we have a serious problem. When you come to Psalm 2, and I picked it on purpose just to kind of get myself reoriented back into the preaching that I haven't done for nine months... But Psalm 1 was a focus on the Word of God we looked at two weeks ago. Psalm 2 is a focus on the Son of God. Those are the two main topics that the rest of the Psalms will cover. If you start reading through, you'll realize everything relates to God the King or God's Word. And so the Psalm starts off that way, making sure you understood how important that is, that you meditate on God's Word day and night. If you're meditating on, on, at night with the lights out, you have to either memorize it or know it somehow or have it playing next to your bed where the scriptures are being read to you. You've got to have it available. The Jews didn't walk around with scrolls. They didn't have monstrous Bibles of some sort that they could take with them. They got the word in the synagogue. And then the church got it from the, the, the apostles and then the, the elders that followed them and they taught them. Many places in scripture were set up to be memorized using the Hebrew alphabet. Lamentations, your favorite book, right? How many chapters? 
Surely someone knows. Read your Bibles. Five chapters. First chapter, how many verses? 22. Second chapter, how many verses? 22. Third chapter, how many verses? 66. Fourth chapter, how many verses? 22. Fifth chapter, how many verses? 22. Good guess. Why did they do that? They each start with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And chapter 3 goes through it three times. Why do that? It's to help us memorize the scriptures. Why would I want to memorize the book of Lamentations? What does it mean to lament? To be sad, sorrowful. It was describing, it was, or it was a reaction to the destruction of Jerusalem. And yet right in chapter 23, or chapter 3, in verse 23, right at the end, you get the song that we sang this morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. In spite of what happened. And when they wiped out Jerusalem, they wiped out Jerusalem. They carried off anything and everything that had any value. Killed off more than a million people and, and uh, made slaves out of the rest of them. This is what Psalm 2 leads up to. When you look at the psalm, you realize what he's trying to say here. It's about Jesus Christ. Some think he's a liar. Some think he's a lunatic. Very few think he is a lord as was coined by Josh McDowell once upon a time. As you look at this chapter, 12 verses, they go by really, really quick. He's presented clearly as God's son, the Messiah, the anointed one. It's a royal psalm. It's celebrating the coronation of God's son. Where Psalm 1 was God's map to life's blessings, Psalm 2 is, is the map to God's choice of a king. You, don't, you can't miss it. You can't get away from it. So you move into Psalm 2, verse 1, and you read these words. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. David wrote this psalm. How do we know? Some of you did a little bit of research. You didn't do any research. Acts chapter 4 is attributed, in verse 25, it's attributed to King David. Psalm 2 is it quotes from it. So we know David wrote this even though it isn't in your Bibles under the heading of Psalm 2. But David is amazed. He, he's looking at this going, what's with the rebellion of these men? What is wrong with them? And yet when you go into Scripture, you're going to realize what they're going to do. Why are the nations in an uproar, in tumult, in commotion, this violent agitation, this uprising? We would know it today as this rioting on the part of the kings of the earth. The peoples are devising a vain thing. They are musing, meditating. They're plotting something that is vain. It is empty. It is useless. It is worthless. Why are they doing that? They're doing it right now. They want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And the countries where they've gotten control, mostly communists, socialists, a lot of different ists that we throw around with different names, they've thrown out God. They've thrown out the Bible. They're already resisting him and fighting him. And what are they trying to do to America? Get rid of God and the Bible. That's what Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are about. They don't like Psalm 1, the Bible. They don't like Psalm 2, God, in, in control. 
I'm sorry? Right. Well, that's what the Bible is. It is truth. And so as you're looking at the struggle here, David is saying, what is going on? He is confused in this uproar. Why would they even think about doing this? So in verse 2, the kings of the earth, the leaders of the earth, take their stand to fight. This is a picture of a military array. They're stationing themselves. They're setting themselves up to take on who? God. You know what they're going to think he is in the end? Some kind of alien that's trying to invade. And they're going to go, we knew there were aliens out there. And here he comes in all of his glory with all the angels with him. And they're going to gather together in, Psalm, or in Revelation 16, Revelation 19. They're going to gather the, the armies of the earth together to fight him. What a joke. What an absolute foolish thing to do. And he says in verse 2, the rulers take counsel. They, they sit in the secret assembly. The Catholic Church calls it a conclave. It's a word. But it's when they have the secret meeting. They seat themselves close together. And they have this meeting. They're taking counsel together. And their meet, purpose for the meeting is against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed, which is another name for the Messiah, which is another name for the Christ. Messiah, Old Testament, Christ, New Testament. Both words mean the anointed one. This is who they're taking their stand against. They know what they're doing. They don't want him. They're trying to drive him away, get him out of our lives. He cannot dominate. He cannot tell me what to do. And the quote from them, this profession they make with their mouths, their determination is, let us tear their fetters apart. How do they look at God? He's just a... Mean bully that has locked us up. He's put us in chains. We're in shackles. We can't do anything fun. And they want to tear the fetters. They want to snap off those bands. Pull away their bonds. And then he goes on to say, cast away their cords from us. To throw off these ropes. Figurative of the authority that God has over them. Overthrow their constraints. This is the first three verses that David makes really clear. This is where they're at and you're watching it in our world today. If you could get into some of the secret meetings, they're discussing how to get religion, as they view it, specifically Jesus Christ, out of everything. So they're making it harder and harder for people. What's stopping them in America? Ultimately, God. Why would God do that? Because his church is still vibrant here, although there are missionaries coming to, from other countries to America now because of how bad we are. But God's the one saying, nope, you can't have it yet. He set up a constitution that they are working at to get rid of. Freedom of religion is in that constitution. Mentioning God, our creator, in a variety of ways. I had jury duty this week. I took a pocket constitution with me, and I read it before they released us because they settled, and we all celebrated and walked out at 930, thinking we were going to be there for two days. But I'm looking at this realizing, of course they want to destroy this. When's the last time you read the Constitution of the United States? Hopefully you're keeping track on something not as profitable, not as important as the Scriptures. So make sure that it's secondary to what you're doing with the Word of God. But you need to know what's driving this country, what is protecting this country. God is. And then the, the structure that our forefathers set up, many of them believers, some of them not. 
They put in boundaries, and we're not far from losing all of them. What do we do about it? Here's the Lord's response in verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. I think, that, I think that's funny in just that line. And the Lord scoffs at them. This is his first response. This isn't verbal per se, but he laughs. He holds them in contempt. He disdains them with scorn. And my, my description as I kind of wrote this in, in a modern translation. It's like God is saying, how ludicrous. He has contempt for their evil plan. No, we're not going to do that on planet Earth. I own the planet. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm in charge. I never gave it over to Satan, even though Adam and Eve tried. He does not own planet Earth. I do. And as we've been looking at on Wednesday nights, we realize there's a title deed coming. There is a scroll that's going to only be able to be opened by Jesus Christ, because he alone is worthy. And that gives him authority to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's deserving. And God, he comes up and takes it out of the hand of God sitting on the throne and begins to break the seals in chapter 6. Finishes breaking the seals in chapter 8. And then God's wrath pours out through Jesus Christ. People think, oh, those are nice fairy tales. Nice stories. Um, not necessarily something you want to share with your children or spend a lot of time on before you go to bed. They're not stories. If you take the time to read the scriptures, you realize everything in there has been validated. All of the history and all of the, or half of the prophecy has been fulfilled to the T. They'll take the book of Daniel and they try to post-date it by about six centuries because it is so accurate, there's no way it was written at the time it was written. Four centuries, maybe, something like that. So there are many people teaching, oh, that was done in, in the second century A.D., um, B.C., because then they wanted to be able to show you that, you know, Daniel already saw a lot of this stuff happen with all of these nations and all that happened with them. And they'll keep doing that instead of realizing, no, there's evidence and proof that it was, took place before, that Daniel took place before these events ever took place. That God's prophecy, half fulfilled, means that half of the Old Testament prophets are still coming. And yet I've had people tell me, I don't read the Old Testament. That, that's the Old Covenant. It's not valid anymore. Oh, really? I thought all Scripture was profitable. And when they wrote all Scripture was profitable, how much of the New Testament was complete? Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy 3 could have been some writings starting to get passed around. But he's referring to the whole Bible when he writes that. An old covenant and a new covenant are valid. They're true. But in the new covenant, he only fulfilled the old and made it better. And providing a way so that Israel didn't have to prove their righteousness by their lifestyle. That they weren't conditionally lost when they turned away. That the king couldn't be thrown out like Saul was. And David prays in Psalm 51, take not your spirit from me. That, the Holy Spirit came on him as the anointed one to reign as king. David thought, I saw what happened to Saul, it's going to happen to me. Please don't do that. He wasn't losing his salvation. He was losing his position as king. And God chose to not take it away. Could have. David deserved it. But as he comes in here, he's acknowledging the true king, the ultimate king. And so he scoffs at them. As he watches what these men are doing, the Lord, and uses the term Adonai there, 
It's, it's not Yahweh, it's not Elohim, it's Adonai. It's the master, the owner, the sovereign one scoffs at them. He mocks them in derision. He ridicules them in triumph. And he makes, again, in my mind, in his, I mean, in his mind, makes a statement of saying how foolish. You ever had your kids turn on you? Especially two-year-olds. You're just shaking your boots, right? When they stand there like I did as a two-year-old to my grandmother, and I said, no. And my grandmother didn't want to do anything to me, so she turned around to protect and make sure I didn't see her laughing. She was scoffing at me. And I told her, I said, Nana, you go in the house, I'll stop digging. You don't go in the house, I'm not going to stop digging. Two-year-old. Covered her mouth, turned around, went in the house, watched out the window. I laid the little tool down that was destroying her flower bed. And she lived next door in Palo Alto, California. And I went home. Defiant. This is how God looks at the kings of the earth. A little different from Nana to a two-year-old. Little different separation there. And he laughs. He goes, you people have no idea who you are, and you definitely have no idea who I am. That's not going to happen. And he tries to explain. And he says there, then he will speak to them in his anger. This wrath, this fierce anger. And it's an emphasis here with the word anger, this angry countenance on the face. He's going to speak to them with an angry face and terrify them in his fury. He's going to disturb them, bring them to dismay, cause them to be greatly scared. I call this scared spitless in his burning anger. And I, my wife calls that your angry eyes. In fact, if she watches this, she'll say, you weren't very nice today. There, I smile. I relax a little bit. But this isn't a relaxing message. This is trying to bring out something that God is going to speak. And it's going to uh, come from his anger, terrify them in his fury. And here's what he says in verse 6. But as for me, in contrast to these kings who are demanding, tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords, get out of my life. He says in verse 6, I have installed my king upon Zion. You don't count. I haven't installed, I have set or appointed, and literally the idea comes behind this Hebrew word, I have invested with authority my king, the Davidic line, the predicted Messiah. Where? Upon Zion. This is the city of David. Literally was the temple mount, the seat of the king, also called the holy hill, and many verses describe it. Forty times just in the Psalms talk about Zion. And he says... This Zion is my holy mountain, my sacred place that has been set apart, my sanctuary. That's where my king's going to be. Guess where the Antichrist is going to try to set himself up? Well, he will for a time. 2 Thessalonians 2. He'll set himself up in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. And what's Israel going to do as a mass? Not the remnant, but as the general population of Israel, what are they going to do? They're going to accept him and worship him as their God. Why didn't they accept Jesus Christ? He worked miracles. He fit into the kingly line of David from the tribe of Judah. Why did they reject him? What was he telling them to do? 
Okay, there was, there was that. John the Baptist came in describing more of that idea of repentance. But he was telling them to stop sinning. When you go in and look at what he was going to accomplish for them, he was turning them away from their sin. What do you think the Antichrist is going to do? Man of lawlessness. He's going to let them do whatever they want. So we live in a day today where people think sin is um, setting us free. Sin is freedom. Sin is liberty to do whatever I want. How's that working out for America? Destroying it. That little two-year-old with the hands on the hips, nobody's telling those children no anymore. On that negative side, don't do that. And they are telling them to do some things that are horrific in God's eyes. See, freedom that leads you into sin is death, and it's in slavery. Satan doesn't give freedom. He destroys. Jesus Christ gives true freedom. But if you follow Jesus Christ as he attempted to in the first century, it's going to cost you. You aren't going to get to do everything you want to do. You aren't going to be able to turn loose all of the stuff that's going on in America today. And I don't even want to mention half of it. Garbage. Doing stuff to children before they're even old enough to know what's being done to them. There are already children that have come through some of that. It's a small group. Now it's becoming very large. On the transgender side of things, they're already coming through and they are beginning to process the idea that you ruined me. There are lawsuits coming out you're never going to hear about in the news because of what they did. And a lot of these people are committing suicide because of the condition they're in. You know, the average age for homosexuals years ago, I don't know where it is today, I haven't heard any updates. Average age of death, 42. Why is that? Because sin leads to death. It doesn't set you free. It enslaves you. It destroys you. And I've had friends I've tried to reach out to, people I've tried to help, trying to teach the truth. All sin is that way. We can't just pick on it. Some people think, well, those, those are the big sins. Uh, lying, you know, little white lies, that's not bad. A little bit of gossip, that's not bad. What other ones are little sins? Which ones do we make excuses for? Hatred? Oh, I got one over here. We justify them, don't we? I can lust a little bit as long as I don't do it physically, I can do it mentally. And it's okay. You guys are really quiet today. I'm, I must have my angry eyes on. I'm scaring you. This verse or this chapter scares me. That's what it should do. It should bring me to my knees in worship and recognition, adoration for who Jesus Christ is. But the world is already mocking him. This dead Jew from 2,000 years ago is going to do what? They don't believe he resurrected, although all the evidence points to it. They've had numerous people try to disprove the resurrection. Numerous people that were lawyers. I have three or four books in my library. Guess what happened to them? They became believers. Because they realized one guy that was actually a really good lawyer, he said there's more evidence for the resurrection than any other case I've ever, whatever they call the term, lawyered. And he recognized it was true. But nobody looks at it. Nobody takes the time to evaluate it that, of what happened, that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. 500 people at one time don't have delusions. 
about somebody resurrecting when they didn't. Roman guards do not let some prisoner come out of the tomb, even if he just swooned, as they try to claim. The Roman centurion told you he was dead. Do you know what happens to him if he's not really dead? The centurion dies. You have too many bits of evidence in there that would take place. You look at what they did to him just physically for 24 hours before they even crucified him. And on and on it goes for the evidence. He died, and he resurrected. And the guards who were at the tomb pled with the chief priests or the the leaders of the Jews to get them off because they knew they were dead because they were guarding the tomb and the, the dead person escaped. And they passed out. If you knew Roman soldiers, you'd realize that's not normal. These guys were bloodthirsty. They just, they didn't care about anything. They would slaughter you in a second if you got in their way. They'd put their pack down and expect you to walk a mile with them, carrying their pack. And if they turned around and you didn't pick it back up, dead. Grab their pack, go find another Jew. You're going to do it. You don't, dead. Until I get my pack carried. So when he sells you at the end of that, don't carry it just one mile. Carry it two. Because the second mile is on us. The second mile is showing a genuine love and concern for them. They're tired. They're, they're worked very, very hard. They were um, strong men who had posi- positions over there that were constantly had to keep up. They were always on their guard, afraid somebody was going to get them. And here's somebody who wants to help me. This is what God's asking for. I don't hate homosexuals. I don't hate transgenders. I don't hate any of them. I have spent hours and days with some of them trying to reach them, trying to help them. And then with them, once one friend of mine got AIDS and suffered with that, trying to figure out what you can do. They're not lepers to me. I hug them. Because I was once a sinner too. But there's a lot of confusion. But in this case, there's no confusion. They know who is king of the universe. It's Jesus Christ. So when you get into verse 7, you move on to the reality of what's going on here. God explains it to make it clear right in the beginning of the book of Psalms so you don't miss this. He says in verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. There's a lot of confusion with that. Quoted a number of times in the New Testament. What he's talking about, I'll take you back to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. If you can find the 1 and 2 you can kind of find your way in there. Look at 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 14. This is called the Davidic Covenant. And I'm just going to grab one little verse out of here. And he says, in writing this covenant, God's covenant with David, starting in the, earlier in this chapter. In verse 14, he says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. That's that little phrase there. Is David God's son? Or does that term mean something different than what we think it means? When he says here, thou art my son, yes, he's the son of God, and we think of that in many ways. But it has nothing to do with physical birth. It's trying to describe the installation of a king, the installing of his son as king. That's what this idea here of of being begotten, not physical birth, but becoming God's son in this position, this future Davidic line as the messianic 
title gives to the word son. Now, I know that may be confusing. You may not see that in the New Testament. You can grab onto this, look up the word begotten in your concordance, and follow it up in the New Testament. You'll see it used a number of times. I'll give you one. Hebrews chapter 1, as I go back there. It's all referring back to the Davidic covenant that um, Jesus Christ ultimately is going to fulfill. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. To which, for to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son? Today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. That's what's happened in Revelation 5.11 that I read earlier. And this is what God desires. His son, the only begotten one, is actually taking up the position as Messiah. David was called his son because he was one of the anointed ones. But ultimately, Jesus Christ will be the anointed one, the one who will take over. And so he says there in verse 8, as he's talking to his son, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. He says, Ask of me. First command in this section. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. That's interesting. He didn't give that to David. He didn't give it to any other Jewish king that reigned. He's only given it to Jesus Christ, and he tells them clear back in Psalm 2 that this is what's going to take place. Jesus Christ is the rightful heir. He is the only begotten. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And God says specifically here that he's going to give him the nations as thine inheritance. All of the people on planet earth. He's going to give them very ends of the earth. All of planet earth as his possession. Jesus Christ is going to reign. What does the Antichrist attempt to do? Some of you have been looking at it on Wednesday nights with us. What's the Antichrist want to control? The earth. Where is he going to set up his throne? In the temple in Jerusalem. Sound familiar? He's copycat of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called great tribulation. The world, I mean, the church has been tribulating for 2,000 years. John 16, 33, in the world you shall have tribulation. We've had it. It's in pockets all around. The great tribulation is when the tribulation is worldwide. The word mega, mega tribulation. That's the only difference. I try to tell people, you can only die certain ways. You can only be tortured for so long until your body gives up. That's been going on for 2,000 years. But at a point in time when the Antichrist comes and declares himself to be the Messiah of Israel, declares himself to be God, to be worshipped, he's going to take that persecution worldwide. And ultimately, as we see in the breaking of the fourth seal, a fourth of the world is going to be killed. Purposely killed by four methods. What are they? Oh, class of Wednesday nights. What is it? Sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth. They're going to use those four things to kill off people. How are we doing on the pestilence right now? They're just getting warmed up. There's a lot of things going on in the labs today you know nothing about. The problem is, they don't want to kill off their followers, they only want to kill off the bad people, the ones that won't follow them. And that isn't just going to be Christians, that's going to be anybody else that doesn't agree with this situation, who hasn't taken the mark of the beast yet, who hasn't committed, they're kind of riding the fence, just like Hitler did. It wasn't just Jews he was after, he hated gypsies, they were too independent, he hated blacks, 
They were too different. He began to hate others as well. Anybody that stood in his way. The handicapped, they can't be the, the, the superior race, so we're going to get rid of them as well. And on and on it went. And so as he's struggling here, it's God telling his son, I have begotten you. I have set you up as the Messiah. It's not talking about him being born in some way. It's talking about him being given the, the reins, given the position as Messiah, as the anointed one, the anointed one. And he says, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations, the very ends of the earth. There's the inheritance. There's the possession. He, he, he gets to have dominion over everything down here. And then verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Jesus Christ will put down all rebellion. When he's done, there will be no unbeliever on planet earth. There's not going to be a fourth of the world that dies. It's going to be the majority of the world that dies. Because they've rejected him. Why would they do that? How ludicrous. How foolish. He's the only solution for us. I don't want him to reign over me. I don't want him to tell me no. I'm going to put my hands on my hips and say, you can't make me stop sinning. Oh, yes, I can. And you will. And when I'm done with you, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Hitler's going to be there confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mao tongue. Jesus Christ is Lord, not me. Many men today, many politicians in Washington, D.C. think they are gods. Think they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, and you can't do anything about it. And that makes you just jump up and down for joy, doesn't it? If you find out, which you're only getting a very smidgling amount of information, but if you find out what they're doing, what is it, how does it make you feel? Angry, scared, frustrated. When you find out some friend of yours went to jail for the same thing, and they not only get away with it, but they get to do ten times as much and celebrate it. It's not fair. What does God bring when Jesus Christ reigns? Justice. When my kids told me it's not fair, I had to constantly teach them, life is not fair. You have to accept those things in life. I've had many people in my life mistreat me, a bully. One time I was just playing a video game back when you could take a silver dime that I wish I had back for the video game, drop it in there and play the video game at the bowling alley. And this kid, a year older than me and a lot bigger, came up, shoved me. I was not taught to take shoves. So I stood up to him. The next thing he did was slap me across the face, probably better than punching me in the nose. But when he slapped me across the face, my dad was walking up. And the guy said, I had taken his game away from him. And my dad knew that wasn't the case because he had just given me the dime to go play. I only had one dime. And the injustice was there. And so my dad didn't do anything, just made the kid go away. But I still remember that injustice. He lied about me. He stole from me. I didn't get to finish my game. I could have had a perfect score. But all of you have things. You think back in your lives, and I give you dozens of them. Slapped across the face, made my mouth bleed super bad because someone guy wanted to show me he was faster than me at the hand, the slap thing. I didn't know you're supposed to go for the face. I thought you're just supposed to go for the hand. Whack! 
Then he told me to tell the vice principal that I'd run into the door in the bathroom. He was a gorilla. I told the vice principal I ran into the door in the bathroom. Because if I didn't and he got in trouble, I don't know what he would have done to me after school. But I can give you story after story after story, and all of them, all those things shape us. They, they bring us down and realize our humanity, our limitations, our uh, dependence ultimately on God, but on our dad or whoever was around there. And this is what's going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to come back, and he's going to set all things right. Remember the souls under the altar? If we ever get the, the fifth seal, what are they asking for? Revelation 6. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge us? What does God say? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about you guys. It's so bad. Yeah, you're going through so much. And what he says to them is, just a little while longer. What? When God's done, it'll end. But so will sin. So will sinners. We should have tears coming out of our eyes when we think of friends that are defying God, that are rejecting the gospel, and that want to pursue their sins because they're killing themselves. And I've known quite a few that have done that in my life. They won't listen. I've known a lot that have died pursuing sin in their life. Most of them, I think, if not all of them, as unbelievers. He tells them that Christ is going to break them with a rod of iron. He tells them that he's going to shatter them like earthenware. A crushing blow for these rebels. Putting down all the rebellion. And so he, he summarizes this as you're reading the psalm and you're here today going through verses 10, 11, and 12 and you cover the rest of the commandments. Five more. One in verse 8, ask of me to the son. And now five commandments to the kings and the judges. And he says in verse 10, now therefore, O kings... The royalty, you people that have authority to reign, show discernment. Step number one, command. Be prudent. Act wisely. Discern what's going on here. Stop being foolish before it's too late. How are they going to do? You can read Revelation what they're going to do. As they gather the, the, the armies of the earth together to fight Christ. They're not going to show very good discernment. But you can. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, or you're listening to me, and you are pursuing sin in your life, thinking, well, it's just little sins. There are no little sins. In fact, the bite of a baby rattlesnake is more potent than the bite of an adult rattlesnake. The reason is they can't control how much venom they give you. So they give it all. But it's, it's just a little snake. It's just a little sin. It's destroying. It's destroying our country because the church is compromised. The church has these hidden things they're doing when they think nobody's looking. And, and the professed church of people who aren't even saved, who go to church, they want to be around Christians. They like the atmosphere there. There's a lot of neat things. They enjoy the music and the friendships because Christians tend to be genuine. They tend to be real. They tend to not stab you in the back. And I say tend to because there's exceptions. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you're dominated by sin. It's running your life. And it will never satisfy. Some heroin or a lot of heroin. What's going to make me happy? Not heroin. 
It's a rat hole that just makes it worse and worse and worse when you start down that road. Is it easy to get off of? No. We had a kid in high school that was a bully and a, a drug pusher. He actually sold it and used it. And we had a prayer group out on the bleachers because they kicked us out of the school at the time. Separation, church, and state. And we're sitting on the bleachers praying one morning before school, so it was 7 o'clock, somewhere around in there. Just a group of us, maybe six or eight of us. And he comes walking up. And I'm looking over at him going, uh-oh, Mr. Trouble is here. And he asks the question, is, is this the prayer group that meets on every morning? Yes. Kind of like Paul, you know, that you're going, what are you doing here? He said, may I join you? And we're going, why? And we found out that he had become a believer about a month before. I didn't get all the details about it. Horrible home life, all kinds of problems. And when he became a believer, the last good things in his life, because he didn't connect with us or a church, but the last good things in his life were cut off. He had a very abusive father from the little bit I gathered and a lot of problems and drugs at home and all kinds of stuff, and he ended up committing suicide. So did he really come to Christ? I think so. He didn't beat us up that day. They made us wrestle in high school, intramural wrestling. I had to wrestle this guy that was another troublemaker, big troublemaker, but he was the same weight as me, and the coach loved it. Because we would go in there for the three rounds, and he would drive me all over the mat. I'd eat the mat the first round, just trying to tire him out. Second round, we're kind of even. Third round, I always pinned him. Never looked him in the eye, never mocked him or ridiculed him. He was a smoker. I just knew I just had to outride him. And he would tucker out and give up. The coach did it over and over and over. So when I went out and, and, and the, around the school or whatever, I kept thinking, one of these days, one of these days, He's going to hurt me because I have humiliated him too many times in wrestling class. I tried to share the gospel. I tried to share with many people. A friend named Steve told me to shut up. What are you doing with Jesus Christ today? What are you afraid of that might happen if you really get serious with the Lord? You really read the word and meditate on it day and night. You really exalt Jesus Christ and worship him because of who he is. He's God, the Messiah, the anointed one, coming back to reign. What are you, what are you afraid of? Why don't we open up? They're desperate. They're dying out there, literally dying out there, looking for answers. And what they want to see is someone who really knows Christ and really lives it out and will love them in spite of who they are and what they've done, whatever their sin may be. But instead, too often, we think the best thing to do is act like them. Get drunk with them. Party with them. I don't see Jesus doing that. And yet he was called a friend of sinners. But anytime he showed up, everything changed. Yet they knew he was real. And they knew when he died that that too was real. And there were a number of people that had come to faith in Christ. Some of whom demons had been cast out of. Some of whom, like Peter, who was always had his hands on his hip and his mouth going and his foot in his mouth. And yet Peter really comes to Christ and in Acts we see him suffering for his salvation, for his Lord. 
This is what we're after. Are you content just to kind of hide out, kind of get into that COVID mode and just say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to leave them be? Or are you walking next door and bringing cupcakes or inviting them over for a dinner? Oh, they, they stink. Or they, they may bring their cigarettes with them. Okay. What are you doing to make it happen to help them to know that Jesus Christ is Lord? He's coming back. The world, our country, is disintegrating. It's now down to 20% because the schools aren't teaching it. When I was in school, McGuffey Reader had scripture in it. When I was a kid, 50s and 60s, they're, they're taking it all away. They know nothing. And then they're fed lies about it and told that you can't trust it. It's not worthwhile. It doesn't work. When they see you loving them, when they see you walking in righteousness, which is the obvious evidence, 1 John 3.10, of a true believer, they'll either hate you, and then you know, okay, you've made your choice, or they'll ask you a reason, to give them a reason for the hope that's within you. That's what we're after. Why do you think you're still on planet Earth? Why do you think I'm still here? I've asked God when I got cancer, take me, take me, take me. No, 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 no. He's taking other people around me. I'm sitting with some of them. It's not what? Not fair that he hasn't taken me? You're wishing for my death? No, I understand. I understand. I'm giving you a hard time, Mr. Stone. <laughs> Show discernment. Discern. This, this is available for every single unbeliever we know. Second command, take warning. This is a nifil. This is a passive. Let yourself be corrected. Not with my hands and my hips, I won't. You can't tell me I'm wrong. Don't fight him. Love him. Take warning. Let yourself be admonished, O kings. Accept God's discipline when he brings you down. And you're seeing that when I hear in the news that some leader has gotten cancer, some leader is on his deathbed, I pray for their salvation because that's the one time when God can finally get a hold of them and they realize they're not a God and they're not living forever. And a lot of your friends will desert you when you have no authority, no power, nothing that you can do for them anymore. Goodbye. I'm going to go find somebody else that I can manipulate to help me in politics or in business or whatever it may be. They get deserted. That's when we need to be available to step in and encourage them. Point out the gospel. Point them to Jesus Christ. But he's telling them, this is up to you. This is against Calvinism. Let yourself be corrected. It's up to you, O kings, to recognize in your discernment that you need to stop what you're doing and admit who Jesus Christ is. Then he brings up another group of leaders. Oh, judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence. This word literally means to serve or to perform acts of worship. Serve God. Labor as God's subjects. This will be in reverence with this fear, with this awe. In, in Hebrews 10, 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Many people think there is no living God. I don't have to worry about hell. It doesn't exist. How do you know? Jesus said it exists. It's all over in the Old and New Testament. Sheol, Hades, hell, Tartarus. There's so much in there. And then the eternal um, judgment that's going to come for those that have rejected Jesus Christ. Well, I don't believe that. So that makes it all go away. Really? Have you ever checked it out? 
I'd encourage you just to follow Psalm 1 and read your Bible. Find out what Jesus said about it. If he was a good man, if that's all he was, was just a good man, not a liar or a lunatic, but if he was just a good man, then he probably has some good things for you to learn. Check it out. But don't tell me you've talked to somebody that's come back from the dead and they said there was no hell. Don't tell me you've talked to someone like the three-year-old that, that had this uh, out-of-body experience and went to heaven and there was a unicorn and there was all kinds of stuff up there and it was a peaceful place. Don't take your testimony off a three-year-old that was on drugs on the operating table. Why do people want that? Why do they run after that instead of just looking at the eternal word of God? Because that gives me what I want. That makes me think heaven's going to be a great place and I'm going to be just fine. I don't have any worries. Everybody gets to go there. Not what Jesus said. Not what God said. Not what the scriptures say. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's it. Do you know him? Is he a personal, have a personal relationship with him? Then you follow the next command. He said, not only to serve him and perform acts of worship, but rejoice with trembling. This is a harder one. I put the word whoop in there. Uh, in the dictionary, it fits fine as a definition. But rejoicing here is being excited with gladness. And this trembling is literally quaking. You notice when God shows up in the Bible, how people respond to him? Isaiah 6.1, high and lifted up. And what does Isaiah, the, the great prophet, say? I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people with unclean lips. He immediately recognizes his, his guiltiness before Almighty God, who is perfectly holy. And yet God was using him. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we can rejoice with trembling. We, we can have this whooping um, idea here, but it's going to be with this quaking because of who God is. And the last one he commands, do homage to the Son. Literally, the Hebrew word is kiss the Son. This is the idea of kissing in submission to him. Remember the um, uh, 1 Kings 19, 18, when, when um, Elijah's talking about 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee or kissed Baal, Baal. They used to bow down and kiss their their altars, their, their um, gods that they had created, which is a joke. That one's out of stone, has been carved out with, with, some, with, with some of those, but they would take a tree, cut it in half, this half I'm going to burn and use for firewood and cook my food, this half I'm going to make an idol and, and then set it up and worship it. And he's going, what is wrong with you people? Habakkuk, near the end of Habakkuk, talks about that. They can't talk, they can't think, they can't answer prayer. There is no life to them. Why are you doing that? Because I'm in control. My God does what I say. The true God does not. So what he's after here is not rebellion. It's not foolishness. It's not arrogance. It's not gloom and not defiance. Kiss the sun. There's an urgency to that when he says, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. It's going to come suddenly and without any warning. And then he closes off 
giving them this confidence that they can have. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How happy, how spiritual, spiritually and physically prosperous are those who take refuge in God. It doesn't mean they're rich. It just means they have everything they need. And they take refuge. They find shelter and protection. It's used in scripture describing what you do when you get under a tree for the shade of the sun, from the sun. Or you get behind a shield to be protected. It's the word he uses here. And only in the son of God is there safety from the wrath of God. Do you know him today? Is, is he the focus of your life? Do you worship him? That song, I probably played that song 25 times this week that we did for special music. And I wept. Behold our God, realizing who he is. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone has given his son to die on the cross for our sin. He's made it all possible for us to believe and to trust in him. Do you know him? Do you truly worship him? Prove it by the way you live your life. Let me catch you when nobody's looking. And I should find you worshiping the son meditating on his word, not playing games with sin, not turning away from things that are going to be beneficial to you. That's what the world's desperate for. 20% believe the Bible is the word of God. Let's go out and make a difference. Introduce them to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder in my life. I know that I get far more out of these messages than anybody else. God, I do worship you. I love you. I follow you. I serve you. I acknowledge my hands have come off my hips. I have nothing to offer you but obedience. May that be true about our church. May we see revival here in the, in the little town of Lapine. May we stop making excuses as to why we don't have to make disciples. May Jesus Christ take over our lives 100% because he is the anointed one. He is Lord. He is our king. And may no one that comes in anywhere, any time of con uh, contact with us ever wonder about that. May they recognize who he is and how we have responded to him. So thank you for this reminder and for this day. Help us with this final song to sing it from our hearts for your glory. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.